It's July 28, 2021. Welcome to the new reality edition of Bite Marks Cafe right here on Hawaii Public Radio where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and innovation. I'm Bert Lum. First up, we'll have Migdad Abizadigan, and he's here to tell us about an upcoming startup grind talk happening over at Hub Coworking. And then uh, we'll be joined by East West Center scholar Peter Hershock, who's here to tell us about a program called Humane AI and Forging a New Ethical Relationship with Artificial Intelligence. And of course, right now, I want to welcome Megdad Abizadigan, and he's here all the way from uh, Startup Grind and the Hub Coworking, and to tell us about uh, the uh, upcoming Fireside Talk. Hey, welcome to the show, Megdad. Hi, Bert. How are you, man? Hey, you know, I, <clears throat> I know it's been a while since I've had you on the show. In fact, I think uh, the last time I had you on was pre-pandemic, so... Uh, and and when I did have you on, we were talking about the the sort of relaunch of of startup grind and uh, all the cool speakers that you've been you know scheduling. And then of course the you know the pandemic hit, and I think it kind of went went maybe silent for a while. But I noticed that uh, startup grind is is uh, back up and running, and and uh, I think we had Stuart Coleman a uh, couple of weeks ago talking about his startup grind talk and. So tell us, what's, uh, what's been happening with Startup Grind? Yeah, sure. For people, for those who don't know about Startup Grind, Startup Grind is the largest independent organization for entrepreneurs with 600 chapters in 125 countries in the world, and it's powered by Google for Startup. Yes, we had Stuart Coleman last time, and he was one of our best speakers. If you haven't listened to that or you weren't there in person, I encourage you to tune into our YouTube channel or Spotify if you prefer to listen to a podcast and uh, catch up with that. Uh, yes, COVID-19 was uh, a bit difficult for us uh, since we are uh, relying on people to come in person for our events and fireside chat. Uh, but once after COVID-19, we decided to focus our attention to reimagine Hawaii and focus more on social entrepreneurship and highlighting stories that are that are in alignment with building a new economic system. So. So far this year, we had two rock star speakers, Quinn Vitam from Reuse Hawaii and Stuart Coleman with Wastewater Alternative and Innovations. And we're so, so excited for our next event on August the 5th. Uh, we will be having a raw and real conversation with Mahina Paishan Dorth. She's the co-founder and CEO of Vivi Collective. Now, I like the, word, the, I like the yes. fact that you use the word raw. I mean, and you're probably... Prefacing the, the the fireside talk with some real honest <laughs> honest dialogue. What do you what do you what do you yeah. Uh, anticipate? Yeah. So our our uh, uh, since COVID nineteen, I think um, we wanted to to do something a bit different. I think most startup grind chapters around the world are focused on tech entrepreneurship, and we do too. But we wanted to do something that was more uh, more aloha. <laughs> so, and the, I think Mahina is uh, she is a local woman with a lot of energy and great ideas. Uh, we will be talking about how to empower locals uh, and uh, and long-term residents and anyone who joins, maybe short-term residents, and educate them about the history of Hawaii and join the conversation around um, how do we create innovation that is aligned with the Hawaiian culture. So um, if you don't know about YY Collective, it's a group of native Hawaiian entrepreneurs who share responsibility and passion for uplifting the community. 
Um, we want to brainstorm together on the ways we can collaborate and bring real shift to our economic model. Um, so that's that's the main goal, and we are doing something a bit different. Our uh, uh, interviewer will be George from Hub Cowork in Hawaii, and um, the set of questions that he has is very different than what we used to do with our previous speakers. Um, and I encourage people who can come in person to join us uh, next week. Otherwise, like I mentioned, we, we will have the, the talk available on YouTube. And also there is a, a free Zoom um, event um, at the same parallel to the actual in-person event where people can join us on Zoom and network. We will also stream this live on Instagram, and you can follow us at Startup Grind HNL. Um, and yeah, we're so so excited, Bert. No, that's great. And I, you know, I did tune in via Zoom uh, on on. In fact, I think it was Zoom, or maybe maybe it was Instagram, because I I can't for, you know I can't remember what streaming <laughs> social media uh, platform I was on, but I got a notification, and and I think it was a startup grind live. So I clicked on it, and and I was watching with my uh, smartphone, and. Yeah, it was great, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm yeah, impressed. It was Instagram, the fact that, actually. I remember interacting with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm impressed by the fact that you have a multi-platform distribution system over there. <laughs> yeah, we had to be flexible and and adapt to the new reality, and we're excited. We're we we are getting new set of eyes on Hawaii people that even come from other areas uh, around the U.S. and maybe around the world. At, at least we can uh, be a voice. Uh, for the Hawaiian stories. That's great. That's great. So, uh, so Mahina is coming up on the next one on August fifth, and you know, if if you want to get a notification of the Zoom link or or even when the uh, Instagram live goes, uh, where where can people go to, you know, either sign up or or get uh, get notified? Yeah, the best way to enjoy the event is to join us in person on Thursday, August the fifth, at Hub Coworking Hawaii. Uh, 1050 Queen Street, Unit 100. Or if you want to learn more about the event, they can go to www.startupgrind.com forward slash Honolulu. Great. And, of course, uh, you got to be the first 10 to actually get a seat because I think the seating yes. is limited to 10. <laughs> we have few tickets left. So, uh, yeah, we, we're hoping to see more people in person. And just to give you a quick update since, uh, the, the very first talk that we had, we've been able to grow the chapter to 600 members, and we're continuing to grow. We also brought a, a new co-director, Liz Morquecho, uh, and she's been helping us with the outreach and bringing new energy to the chapter. So uh, come and say hi to her, to me, to, to everyone from Hub Coworking Hawaii. We're excited to be back in person and, um, you know, talk, just engage and connect. Sounds great. Mahalo, Megdad, for joining us. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. And, of course, we'll take Mahalo. a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Peter Hershock from the East-West Center. We'll talk about forging a new ethical relationship with artificial intelligence. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm happy to welcome East West Center scholar Peter Hershock, and he's here to talk about his new book, his uh, uh, initiative called Humane AI, and 
The book is called Buddhism and Intellect, Intelligent Technology, and I, I, I would love to have him kind of help define some of these, uh, these references. And of course, welcome, Peter, to Bite Marks Cafe. Hey, thanks, Bert. It's great to be back with you again. Yeah, you know, it's been, I think it was also pre-pandemic that I, that I had you on and, and had you in the studio here, but uh, great to have you on. And, and I uh, got, you know, a notification of, <clears throat> of a, um, not only a talk that you did, uh, but uh, this uh, new book that you've uh, published. And, you know, we've, uh, of course, you know, people who are part of the tech circle in Hawaii has been very interested in artificial intelligence. And, of course, I'm, I'm interested in what you're exploring, you know, in terms of the intersection between uh, humane AI, Buddhism, and, you know, intelligent technology. So maybe, maybe we'll first uh, have you do some, some definitions. And I know artificial intelligence is, is one frame of it, but uh, uh, you also sometimes refer to it as uh, synthetic intelligence. So give us, uh, give us some, some defining uh, terms here. Yeah, I think, you know, the term artificial intelligence suggests that it's something uh, purely made up in an artificial, it's just machine stuff. But in fact, the way in which a lot of these systems are working, you know, they're really taking our data, our human data, and they're incorporating that algorithmically. So the algorithms are working with our data to produce solutions to problems that we phrase for them. And so I think that it's, if you think about what our data is, all of our activity on social media, everything that we're doing on the cell phone, the computer, we were producing all this data, and what it represents is our intelligence in action. So if you think of it that way, what we're really doing is merging human intelligence with this machine algorithmic intelligence. That's why I think it's better to think of it as synthetic intelligence. But if you go one step further and ask, well, what are technologies? You know, most of the time we think of technology as somebody says, well, what kind of technology are you involved in, you know, using every day? Well, it's the computer, it's the, the tablet, it's the smartphone, et cetera. But those are tools. Mm-hmm. You know, tools are localizable, and you can use them or not use them. The technologies are a little different. Technologies are relational systems that include everything from the mining of you know, trace minerals, you know, rare earth, manufacturing, you know, chip development, socialization process of how people get to use things like smartphones and computers and the ways that it transforms our day-to-day lives. So the technology is really this whole relational system and it's become intelligent. So up until now, this particular point in time, our technologies have always been sort of passive amplifiers of our own intentions and values. So technologies kind of scale up human values and intentions. But now these same technologies, having become synthetic, synthesized with our own intelligence, what they're doing is they're scaling up our intentions and values, but they're doing it innovatively. Mm-hmm. And that's an entirely game changer. Now that's that, okay, so there's a couple of very interesting things that you've just shared, and, and maybe we can uh, unpack it. So when, when <clears throat> we as, as users of, of some of this technology, we might might uh, simplify it in the sense of, you know, we might be using a, an application like, you know, Instagram or we might be using our smartphone. But what, you, what you're also saying is that these, these technologies aren't just that thing that you hold in your hand. It's a, it's a whole system of interrelated algorithms and, and applications and, and programming that exchange information behind the scenes that's leveraging the data that we are giving it and 
And like you just said, amplifying those intentions back over to us. Yeah, and I think, you know, for most of us, the, the technology is really pretty invisible. So when I talk about technology, I, I try to insist that people kind of shift from thinking in terms of tools mm-hmm. to thinking about these relational systems so that, you know, you, we build tools. We use them or abuse them. Uh, but we don't actually build technology. We participate in technology. So technology is more like an environment that we're a part of rather than something that we're constructing. And I think once we start to think about it as what's our environment, then when we ask questions about what are the values that are being invested in this environment that are going to shape our lives, the way we think, the way we feel, our aspirations, because these algorithmic systems are reading out everything that we're doing, including our affective responses to stuff, whether we like things or don't like them, Mm -hmm. whether we get excited or don't get excited. And then changing the content of what we're, say, accessing through a search engine or on a platform like an e-commerce platform, feeding that back to us in a way that, yes, it's good for the commercial interest, but is it good for us? I think we need to be asking those bigger questions. Now, when you when you talk about uh, you know the idea of, of uh, mass production and mass consumption, which we are very much accustomed to, and then you layer on top of that, this uh, algorithmic amplification of that intention and for us to really grasp the significance of that do we do we even have a chance i mean do you know given given how quickly uh, things may spread on social media uh, the the ability for uh, memes to occur or divisiveness or even conspiracy theories to spread, just spread so quickly. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, as much as we would like to have a, a, a way of controlling that, what is the, what is the best way for us to, you know, manage that onslaught? Well, there's not any simple answer to that. <laughs> yeah, um, I like, I like to talk about what's going on now as being something comparable to the Copernican Revolution. You know, 400 years ago, Copernicus realized, hey, it's not that the, the sun goes around the earth, the earth goes around the sun. And that really flipped human thinking about the way the universe is organized, and it really triggered off a lot of really wonderful stuff. Mm-hmm. But it really forced this basic rethinking of what's our place in the universe. And I think intelligent technology is really asking us to do the same thing, because as it's scaling up our values, if our human values are conflicted, it's going to scale up the conflict. Right. Whether that's the level of populism rising or geopolitical stuff, it's going to scale that up. And so, you know, it took us 200 years to figure out that if we're burning fossil fuels uh, for industrial purposes, and we're doing that at scale, as that ramps up, We've realized after 100, 150 years of it, and this is going to change the planet's climate. We're disrupting planetary systems with our human activity. And we've known that now for 50 years. And have we made much progress on alleviating that, ending, you know, the carbon emissions into the atmosphere? We haven't yet mm-hmm. because it's, there's a conflict of values. We've got economic values. We want to keep growing economies. We want higher standards of living. We've got social values. We've got political values. We've got cultural values. And guess what? They're in conflict, and that's why we're not moving forward on climate. It took us 200 years with climate to realize that continuing to scale up these conflicts of values is disrupting all the systems that allow life to exist on this planet. 
We're doing the same thing with intelligent technology. It's scaling up conflicts among humans at that cultural, political, economic levels, increasing inequality potentially, perhaps making it possible for this gap between the rich and the poor to get larger and larger, or it could become a force for greater equity. And we've got to make that decision now by clarifying the values that are going to be invested in these technologies. Now, you, you drew a couple of examples. You talk about Copernicus and you know, the realization that the you know, Earth revolves around the sun and, and how that really changed the perception of us you know, in, in our place in the solar system. And I'm kind of curious to see how long did that really sink in. And, and you also brought the example of uh, fossil fuels, 200 years. We're only, you know, maybe we came to the realization over the last 50 years, but it's been 50 years, and, and that in and of itself is a long time. So, you know, if you look at the, how <clears throat> the realization that Copernicus had uh, back then and how long it took for that to sink in, and, of course, you know, this uh, issue around fossil fuels, what is your estimation of how long it might sink in before people realize uh, the the part they play in this ecosystem of technology? Well, I, I, I tend to be more pessimistic on this to be able to generate a sense of urgency. Uh, so I would say maybe the horizon's about 20 years, not 200 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, 20 years for us to really figure out what values are going to drive the development of artificial intelligence and the use of our human data. And that could be for really good purposes, or it could be for mixed purposes, or it could be for really bad, malign purposes. And we've got to make some really clear decisions about that now and get global consensus on it. And one of the convictions we have on this Humane AI initiative at the East West Center is that's got to be done internationally, but also interculturally and intergenerationally. And what we really need is a something like an ethical ecosystem to deal with this, because Every ethical system has blind spots. And so what we need to do is to draw inspiration from ethical systems from around the world to convene conversations about what are our core human values? What does it mean to have quality of inclusion? Not just equal opportunity to participate, but quality of participation for all people. And I think that those are the questions we need to grapple with. How do we go from just ensuring non-exclusion, everybody can use these technologies, but how do we know if they're really quality of inclusion of how we're used, our values are included, and so on? So one of the initiatives we've got is to say, take a look at indigenous traditions, indigenous knowledge, and say what can traditional ecological knowledge, for example, contribute to rethinking what we're doing with intelligent technology? No, that's great. And, you know, I, I do want to explore this uh, idea of ethical systems and, and this uh, benchmark of maybe, you know, having to do something within the next 20 years. I also want to ask you what might happen if we don't do it in 20 years and what might be the uh, consequences. So we want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Peter Hartshock from the East-West Center. We're talking about forging a new ethical relationship with artificial intelligence. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe on HPR One. I'm Bert Lum. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Peter Hershock. 
He's with the East-West Center, and of course, uh, he's here to talk about forging a new ethical relationship with artificial intelligence. And right before the break, we were talking about ethical systems and the fact that uh, maybe we have 20 years to kind of figure this out. I'm curious, Peter, what you think might happen if we don't figure it out in 20 years, and and you know what are what are some of the things that we can help to do to build you know these ethical systems and and get people to you know align in a way that uh you know perhaps we can we can collectively solve <laughs> this problem with uh you know intelligent technology well Bert, i think one of the things that i'd say is that you know what we're dealing with here is a, a digital infrastructure that's part of this larger intelligent technology system and it's really running if you look at what makes it run it's what's making the global economy run, mm-hmm. and that's attention. It's the attraction, the capture, and then the exploitation of human attention, and everything that's carried along with our attention. So when your attention goes online, it's being read by these algorithmic systems so that everything we're doing turns into data for these systems. So the attention economy is really crucial because we're being fed back our likes, our dislikes, our desires, what we wish, what we hope for, what we're afraid of. And these systems are feeding all that back to us. And on the one hand, that's great, because if you get recommendation engines, say, for music that you're interested in, you go on Bandcamp and you you access music, and you're going to get recommendations for other things that you might like. And, damn, a lot of it really is music that you do like. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like a really great thing. But imagine if from the time that you're three or four or five years old, all through your adolescence, you're interacting with those kinds of systems, in a sense, being digitally socialized. Mm-hmm. Then what does that mean? Well, I don't know about you, but most of the really important things I've learned in life is when I've made a big mistake. When I've done something really boneheaded <laughs> and had to make good on it. And with these systems, the danger is, is we're not going to ever be able to select music we don't like. We won't ever get clothes we don't like. We won't ever engage in a conversation we don't enjoy because the systems are there in order to provide us with stuff that admittedly connect with our current desires and values. The problem is I don't think we ought to be the same we are at three years old, at 13 years old, at 30 years old, and so on. We need to change. We need to evolve. And so I think that what the danger is of this technology is that it locks us into what you might call these karmic cul-de-sacs where the values that we've got, the ways that we're enacting those values intentionally, get fed back to us in this kind of infinite feedback loop so that essentially we live lives in which we get more and more of what we want, but in fact don't allow us to connect with one another in the challenging ways that you need to to get the diversity coefficient to really happen, Mm -hmm. where our differences from each other are transformed into us understanding, hey, maybe we can differ for each other in ways that are mutually beneficial. That's what we need to be looking toward, is that sensibility. Now, this idea of dif- differing for each other, and, and I want to you know, kind of weave into the conversation your, your book, you know, Buddhism and Intelligent Technology. And, and where, does, where does sort of Buddhism and the philosophy that, that uh, Buddhists embrace come into play when talking about intelligent technology? Well, I think that all traditions of thought, you know, whether they're 
philosophical ones, religious ones, has something to put into the debate about what we ought to be doing with technology. But Buddhism is a tradition that was founded 2,500 years ago with this insight that everything arises interdependently. Mm -hmm. And none of us are independent of each other, really. We really do live our lives interdependently, and that means relationships are more basic than anything else. And then the question that Buddhism asks is, is everything perfect? Are you having a great time all the time, or are you suffering? Is there trouble? Is there conflict? And then it adds in and says, if there's conflict and trouble, that's a relational distortion. That's a relational difficulty. And so what we need to figure out is, how do we change our values, our intentions, and our actions in ways to give ourselves different relational opportunities and outcomes? And Buddhism gives you a bunch of practices for doing that, but there's a, there's a conceptual ground there that says, what we're experiencing, the world that we're constructing for ourselves, is based on our values and our intentions and how we enact them. So that gives us a kind of an angle in for thinking about what's going on with these technologies. The technologies are scaling up our values and intentions, and we really need to be careful with the relationship that we establish with intelligent technology, because that will determine the kinds of outcomes and opportunities we'll be experiencing. And right now, what you're seeing is a huge skewing of the benefits of these technologies. And I don't think it's, it's particularly equitable. And I think that that's where we need to really start the discussion. How do we get greater equity out of these systems? Now, you bring up, uh, you know, words like values and, and changing values. And, of course, you know, changing preconceived notions is hard enough, let alone trying to change people's sense of value. If people are, let's say, uh overly obsessed with making money, I mean, that is their value system versus taking care of the land. The land. Uh, how, do you, how do you shift those values? I mean, and, and that well, I, in and of itself is a challenge. Yeah, I think one thing that's really important, I mean, we live here, I live here on Oahu, you know, the, the meeting place. And one of the things about Native Hawaiian understanding, and this is true in, in Hawaii as well as lots of indigenous peoples, and it's something that's consistent with Buddhism. And that's that, you know, the world that we're a part of is not something really external to us. It's ancestral to us. Mm-hmm. This world is something that we participate in. It's part of us. It's not a container for us. And so this idea that if technology is an environment that we're participating in, it becomes part of who we are. And so it's transforming us even as we're putting it into play to transform, say, the natural environment, our social environment, our economic environment. We need to take responsibility for that, full responsibility, and start looking at things from the bigger picture. And I'm not going to pretend to have the right set of values that everybody's going to live up to. One thing that Buddhism is really good about is saying what we're looking for is not the right life. What we're looking to do is go about writing what we've been doing ineffectively that's led to these relational distortions of conflict and trouble and suffering. But it's an open-ended process of realizing the conditions for increasingly virtuosic relational dynamics. That's what we're looking for, and that's open-ended. So it's not like there's an end in view, we're going to get there and we're done. we got to continue improvising with one another. And I think what's crucial to it is freedom of attention, that really our most basic human right should be freedom of attention, Because without freedom of attention, there's no freedom of intention. We can't really formulate our own interests, our own values, and so on. So when talking with my 19-year-old son, I always tell him, where did your ideas come from? Where did your desires come from? Where did your intentions come from? 
is it really from you or are you being programmed by your environment? We need to really take back freedom of our own attention. Hey, Peter, that's a great way of, of ending. I know it's been too short. We could probably talk for another hour, uh, but I'll post some links uh, to the work that you've been doing, and it's great work. Peter Hershock is the director of the Asian Studies Development Program over at the East-West Center, and, of course, I want to thank him for joining us today, and thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about eSports over at Hawaii Pacific University. If you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org, or if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email me at bitemarks at gmail.com. You can also find me at Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. Our engineer is David Chong. You can catch us on HPR One every Wednesday or anytime via the HPR app, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. You stay safe. You stay awesome. And we'll see you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Bite Marks Cafe.